0: Beginning of Proverbs chapter thirty-one, and uh, not because we're excited about it being over, but because this is a one of the most tremendous chapters anywhere uh, in all of the Bible. You know, the Book of Proverbs has been an incredible book for us; it, it really has. And you know, finally, we arrive at the uh, final chapter. And as I said, without a doubt, this chapter will be one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, not only doctrinally for the nation of Israel, but for us, inspirationally, as a child of God. You know, and it's basically, uh, once we get past the introduction, which we're going to look at today in the first nine verses, it's basically a chapter on uh, the work of God uh, in our lives. You know, the Bible says, In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that at the time of salvation, he hath begun a good work in us and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. When you got saved, a number of things took place. Obviously, the Holy Spirit of God comes in and becomes one with your soul and seals you under the day of redemption that your soul uh, can never be tainted again and it reigns inside you with the Holy Spirit of God. But uh, so many aspects to it. In fact, you know, in our and our studies is kind of like our discipleship, too. We have the, the, the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. And most Christians that are saved are oblivious to it. And this, again, leads to a lot of issues. But, you know, uh, in, 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 uh, in, when you got saved, one of the things that God did is he began a work in you. And he says that he hath begun a good work in us and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And in Proverbs chapter 31, in the first nine verses, uh, and then throughout the rest of the chapter, you'll actually get to see this work that God has uh, laid out uh, in incredible detail. It's, it's, it, for, for the child of God to have a better understanding of why God saved us and what we are to be doing with that salvation, uh, it's an incredible aspect. We talk a lot around here about getting God's mind And uh, that would be the Bible itself and understanding what God wants to do with us and for us and, uh, you know, and uh, what he has for us. And, you know, I don't know. Most Christians don't think out of the box. They don't think of anything that really um, impacts much in their Christian life. But did you ever wonder why God stopped the son, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and ended his life at 33. I mean, he's the eternal Son of God, is he not? So <laughs> why not just leave him down here and uh for till the Lord is ready to come back? You know, that would have solved a lot of problems. You realize if Jesus Christ would have just stayed down here and not died on the cross and uh, you know, or died on the cross and after the resurrection never went back, just stay down here you realize there wouldn't be any Catholic church, there wouldn't be any Mormons, wouldn't be any Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on your door, uh, there wouldn't be any false religions. I mean, uh, to me, that seems like the plausible way to handle it. I mean, the moment he went back to heaven, it opened up the door for all the false religions to start to unfold themselves, which only leads to confusion. Now, Having said that, I understand why he didn't do that. But I'm just saying, why did he stop his life at 33? I mean, uh, they say life begins at 40. It's Not true, but they say life begins at 40. Why not 40? I mean, uh, our retirement age is 65, 67. Why not 65 or 67? Why did God choose 33 years of age? Do you actually think that, God didn't have a plan in that. So one day the angels ran into heaven and said, Hey Lord, when are you gonna what, what are we gonna do here? Uh you know, uh, how long is he gonna be down there? And the Lord says, Well, how long has he been down there? 30, oh, that's long enough. Is that what you think? That's the way most God's people approach it. They have a clue. They don't, they don't have a clue why God sent his son down here, and then for 33 years left him on this earth, but let's even get a little closer. He was down here for 33 years, but he didn't start any real work or ministry till he was 30. So in actuality, he may have been here 30 years, but he only did his work for three, three and a half years. Now, I'm just telling you, uh, it's a that's a great pattern. Christ's life is a, an incredible pattern and, uh, you know, of many things. In Bible Institute, we, I've just finished the final uh, part of our study on the 11 dispensations. And, uh, you know, we laid out eternity as best we could and all that we will do uh, and be for God uh, as his son in an eternal sense. And I think now the people that came to that, and uh, which most of them are very good Bible students anyhow, and, you know, on our website, we have a lot of people get on that. And and I don't know if you noticed uh, on Thursday night and even on Sunday morning, we have a lot of guys out there who really know their Bible pretty well. I mean, you got some idiots, but, you know, hey, wherever you got light, you got bugs. I mean, it's just that simple. And, you know, but for the majority of the case, the guys out there that are, are really have a good handle on their Bible. Like I said, you got some idiots that get in the he- world of heresy and all that stuff. And, but for the most part, they, they're pretty sound fundamentally. And I, you know, I appreciate that. I talked to many of them on the phone throughout the week. And, uh, you know, but we, we saw, you know, that in the New Testament, how that when you and I get saved, the Bible says that we become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, all things become new. The Bible says at that point, you are translated into the kingdom of His dear Son, and uh, you become a child of God. And, uh, you know, and it's the thing where from that point on, you are called a son of God. And, uh, you know, when you go back to studying uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, we know that Christ is called the second Adam. When you go over there in the New Testament and you read uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and it goes all the way back to Adam, he says that, you know, he comes down there, he comes down through Noah, then he comes through Enoch, then he comes through that whole line. Then he comes down, who was the son of, who was the son of, and then he comes to Adam. And You know what he says? He says comes to Adam, he says, who was the son of God. That's an incredible verse. Everybody misses it. You couldn't get somebody to explain how Adam was the son of God if your life depended on it. Well, it didn't say Adam was a son of God. It says he was the son of God. And of course, the answer to that is that when Adam was created, he's created in God's likeness and God's image. That made him the son of God. And you know what? When you got saved, you got God's likeness or you got God's image, which made you the son of God. And the coming a time when you get your glorified body, you're going to get the likeness. And it's an incredible study to come through the Bible. Uh, you know, we we become Christ through a new birth today, and uh, it's a you know it's it, it we get God's mind on everything. The Bible says in Philippians two five that we are to let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the mind of God. And when you get saved, now you know you're you're called the body of Christ. You're called the son of God. The Bible says over there in 1 John. Now are we the sons of God? Right now. It didn't say, now are we like the Son of God. It says, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. And, of course, uh, somebody asked a question here uh, a couple of Thursday nights ago that I answered and, uh, you know, about millions of Christ being in eternity, you know, and all of that stuff. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that there's, there's millions of Christ here today around the world if you're saved. And and what I'm trying to say is this. The reason why God cut his life short at 33. And we both know that Jesus said, oh, how many times I've come to do the work of my father. Really? Then how come you didn't finish it? If you came down to do the work of the father and it was to evangelize the world with the gospel, why didn't you stick around and do it? And the answer to that is, is because God's plan was for you and for me once we got saved to become the child of God, a son of, the son of God, and be everything that Christ is inside us. And now we, the church, the body of Christ, we, as a son of God, we finish the work that he started. And, and that's how it works. And uh, you know what? Uh, you know, over there in Matthew chapter 20, and I'm going to start out with this next week, I think, when we get into the actual work but in Matthew chapter twenty, it clearly shows God sending His workmen into the into the vineyard to do the work, and that, those workmen are you and me. And they actually line up the church history, and I'm going to show you next week how that the co with the generation and everything that happens, the last workers go in around the middle of the 1800s, and we're part of that. And God saved us, gave us. His spirit gave us, restored the fallen image that Adam lost and made us his son, who someday we're going to get a body just like him. And God has a plan out into eternity for all of us. But right now, hey, come on. God has a plan for all of the Christs. If you're saved today, you are are the Christ. He's living inside you. And he saved you for one purpose, and that is to finish the work that he started. Now, I, I know by saying that uh, there's a lot of people that would have a tough time with that. And my answer to you and your skepticism is simply this. I totally understand why you don't get that and you have a tough time where there being millions of Christ today, just like there's millions of Christ into eternity. They're doing a work out there. We're doing the work now, and I don't even have time to tell you how that the one is a pattern of the other one. But I understand why you struggle with it. You know why? And I, I, if I may speak frankly, I'll tell you why. Because you're not doing the work now. You blew it off. You don't care about serving God. You don't care about the Christ that died for you on the cross. All you go around is look is try to figure out and what you don't like about the Bible or makes you uncomfortable about the Bible. And all of that comes back to the fact that, you know what? Sure, you don't get it. You don't want to get it. You know why? Because you're not doing the work. You see, people like to make their Christian life complicated. It isn't really. The question today is to anybody, are you doing the work as a son of God? It's just that simple. And, uh, you know, uh, the book of Proverbs has been an incredible journey uh, through God's, not only his mind, but through his heart. And I, one of my favorite verses is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where it says that God says that my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. And it takes a, it takes a translation from this life in a natural, unsafe sense into the kingdom of his dear son, and through that translation comes a transformation that lets you see things as as he sees it, and that ought to be the goal of every Christian. You know, uh, and I've given to you this before. You know, Proverbs is such an easy book to outline, and you know, and I've said the first seven chapters, and I and I've I've re, I've reminded you this quite often because I think it's in, it's what I follow, and I think it's vitally important. Proverbs chapter one through chapter seven, he starts out almost every chapter. Uh, saying, my son. And, you know, and in those first seven chapters, he lays out to his son, obviously Solomon, he lays out the importance of getting God's mindset, getting God's understanding, getting God's perception of things. And he talks about how to do that in the first seven chapters, which it's They're incredible chapters. I always looked at it not only as God's uh, Solomon's uh, uh, Solomon's instruction uh, to his son, but I always looked at it as God's instructions to me as his son. And then I've told you many, many times in Proverbs chapter eight through chapter thirty, these is where we. This is these is yeah. These is where we get into the proverbs themselves. And uh, that's the way they speak in Alabama, I'll excuse you. Uh, uh, This is where we get into the Proverbs themselves. And uh, it, they're incredible. And what you have in chapter 8 through chapter 30 is God's opinion, God's mind on everything in, in life. You know, Proverbs, and then you get the Proverbs chapter 31 and then you have the finished product. In Proverbs chapter 31, you have the finished product of a man or a woman who will follow chapter 1 through chapter 7 and then follow chapter 8 through chapter 30 in their life and make the mind of God their mind, allow God through that transition from the the old world into the newness of light, the finished product being Christ fulfilling what he started in you the day you got saved. That good work is only fulfilled as you put the book of Proverbs in the basic outline that I give it to you. And I got, you know, and I don't, this is no allusion to anybody, but most of God's people will never accomplish that. They really won't. Most of God's people will never get there. They just won't. They, they have too many of the things in their world. They have too many of the things that they're involved in doing And uh, they just never get to that point in their life where they can ever get to Proverbs chapter 31. You remember back in Proverbs chapter 2 when we're in those first seven chapters there, I gave you one of the greatest, uh, I think, for me anyhow, uh, passages in the Bible in in chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. And I gave you the seven things that if you want to get God's mind, you have to do. And I have a, you know, a whole series on it, which I'm not going to preach to you today, but you remember it, He said in verse 1, My son, here it is, my son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding, yea, if thou criest after knowledge and lifted up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasure, then, then, Shalt thou understand the fear, Lord, and find the knowledge of God. Okay, seven things. First one, he says, receive his word. And we we know what that means. The third one is hide his word, Psalm 119, verse 11. We got it down. Incline thine ear. We've talked about that many, many times. Apply thy heart. In other words, just hearing what the word of God says won't fix your problem. You've got to apply what you hear. You, You know this. Cry and lift up. Your voice, there's your prayer life and under, and asking God, search and seek. There's your study time in the word of God. And then verse five says, then, then shall thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Now notice, find the knowledge of God. It didn't say find the knowledge about God. It didn't say find the knowledge that, uh, you know, that, uh, that you can know the Bible. No, no. It says that if you do these things, you will find the exact same knowledge that God has, and it will be inside you once you get God's mind. And uh, then through that, then God does that perfect work. Incredible stuff. You know, the book of Proverbs will give you 10 things. And, uh, you know, I've got these listed in, in my Bible, and, you know, they're things that I look at and and, and I think that every Christian, first of all, it'll give you instruction. Now, most people don't like to be instructed. I call those kind of people unteachable. You'll find people that get messed up in the Bible, and you can show them a clear verse that wipes out their heretical teachings before they ever get off the planet. And because they want to believe what they believe so desperately, they'll just ignore They pick and choose. And you know what? They're unteachable. They, they won't take instruction. Second thing it'll do for you is knowledge. Third thing it'll do for you is give you wisdom. Fourth thing will understanding. The fifth thing will be justice. The uh, sixth thing will be judgment. The seventh thing will be uh, uh, equity. That's balance. The uh, eighth thing will be subtlety. That's extreme acuteness. That's being able to see things as they really, really are. The ninth thing will be learning, and then the tenth thing will be discernment. And those are the 10 things that the book of Proverbs will do for you if you follow the first seven chapters. Uh, somebody told me last week, and I'm sorry, I tried to remember who you were, uh, uh, and I even asked several people, did you tell me this? And they said, no, it wasn't us. So, uh, you know, i have I, forgotten exactly who said it was, you know, my You know, uh, my Alzheimer's is kind of kicking in. But anyway, somebody told me last week, I think it was on last Sunday, uh, maybe it was somebody here, they told me that that when they started coming to church five years ago, I was in Proverbs chapter 11. Now, I guarantee you, I, I didn't look it up, but it probably took me at least two years to get through the first 11 chapters. And so that would put us around six plus or, or seven years uh, in the book of Proverbs if we end here uh, within the next six months, in which we will, obviously, in th- chapter 31. And I thought about that. You know, I remember, oh, I don't know, what was it, four or five years ago, we had a few disgruntled people that uh, left the church, you know, and God always comes down and, and cleans out the 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 uh, the the issues, and uh, one of the reasons, and it's never the reason that they say, but it's okay. One of the reasons was the fact that I was too long in the Book of Proverbs, and their, in their mind, uh, you know, uh, you know, is there there isn't that much in Proverbs that he should take all this time? You know, it made me honestly, it made me stop and think. And I remember saying this, I remember thinking this, I said, "Uh, you know, the book of Proverbs is the mind of God. It's probably the deepest book in the Bible that shows you God's opinion. And then I asked myself, I was questioning myself, how fast should we go through God's mind? But you know, that's what Christians are at today. They want to blitz through the things of God that really mean anything to them. And obviously these folks didn't care about the mind of God. They, They didn't care about anything. But it's a thing where it made me stop and think. And my conclusion is that the truth be known, I've probably not done a very good job on my part if I've got through the book of Proverbs, the mind of God, in seven years. It probably should have taken me 700 years to get through it. And then we'd have to go back over and get another 300 years to miss all the things we missed in the first one. And and that really is is a telling statement. When you have a book that clearly is defined as God's opinion on everything, and if you can get it, will change everything about you to be for the work of God. How telling that is for somebody to want to speed read through that and get through God's mind as fast as you can and make a, an acidine statement like, uh, you know what, well, we're just spending too long in God's mind. <laughs> Maybe too long for you, not long enough for me. And uh, And, you know, and I've always said this. If, I've said this for almost 40-some years. If there's one book in the Bible that I would give anything to have total recall on, it would be the book of Proverbs. Uh, you know, and yet, uh, you know, we didn't get all of the Proverbs. I mean, uh, 1 uh, Kings 4.32 says that he had 3,000 uh, 3, Proverbs. We didn't get them all which makes it even more special to me because, better yet, for me, because that means for me, I can't speak for you, that God handpicked the ones that he wanted me to have. Which, again, how fast are we going to blow through that? You know, in every situation, you know, I I need to deal with, I I always follow, and this is why I would like to have total recall. Uh, You know, I always follow the book of Proverbs. Chapter 1 through chapter 7 is really the foundation of it all. And then, of course, the mind of God found in 8 through 30 and then, wow, the finished result of that work that God began in us. You know, and, and I, I'm told in, in chapter 4, verse 23, that the book will deal with the issues of life that comes out of our hearts. And, you know, it's a thing where it's just an incredible book. It'll give you knowledge. You know, and knowledge is facts. It'll give you Wisdom. And yet you'll find that there's two kinds of wisdom. You'll find that there's wisdom with understanding, that's wisdom with God. And then you'll find there's wisdom without understanding, and that's wisdom without God. That's worldly wisdom, like it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And then it'll give you understanding. And when you put the knowledge of God and you get the wisdom of God, and at least of the understanding of God, then you know how God looks at every issue in life, and now you get a look, a glimpse inside the eternal mind of God, and because you are the eternal Son of God living inside you, and you are a Christ, now you know exactly what God wants you to do with the job that He's given you to finish what He started. And boy, will we see that when we get into the book of Proverbs. So let's begin to look at our last chapter here. And uh, we're going to look at the first nine verses, which really form an introduction and and an an admonishment and a warning uh, and instructions from a mother uh, that's given to her son. Now, having said that, I'll just step outside the box for a moment. I cannot overemphasize the importance uh, of mothers in the lives of their children. I just simply can't. And if you don't know that already by the great mothers that are in the Word of God and the patterns that they set for us all through the Bible, I mean, uh, motherhood, you know, in, in, in marriage and in families, you have the role of the husband, you have the role of the wife, you have the role of the father, you have the role of the mother. And I understand the Bible clearly lays those things out, but I want to tell you something. I could never overemphasize the importance of the influence that a mother has in a child's life in those early years if she's following the book of Proverbs. And uh, obviously, this is what we find here in chapter 31, verses 1 through 9. So let's, uh, let's begin to read it here. The words of King Lamel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. What my son, and what the son of my womb, and what the son of my vows? Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. For it is not for kings, O Lamel, uh, that it, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those who be of heavy hearts. Let him drink, and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Open thy mouth for the dumb in the cause of all such uh, as are appointed to destruction. Open thy mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Now, Lord, again, we come to you, and we ask you to take this time today and Open up our hearts, open up the scriptures, give us what we need to see. Thank you for uh, our people in our church that are tuning in today, and then all of those ones across the uh, country and literally across the world who are tuning in today, and we pray, Father, that we'll always be here for them and be a blessing to them, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. amen. Now, a couple of things here in just housekeeping with this verse. The words of King Lamel. You know, again, scholarship goes ballistic and tries to make this somebody else. But Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 25, we also saw it in th- Proverbs 30, verse 1, that we have different names for Solomon, and that's obviously what you have here. And then it's a prophecy uh, taught to him by his mother. And uh, this mother now we know is Bathsheba, and the prophecy obviously is about what follows here is about him being king. Notice verse 2 says, the son of my womb, the son of my vows. Now the vows, or the God getting involved in Solomon's birth and life is found in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24. So all this stuff is very workable to work your way through it. And then, then in verse 3 through 9, she begins to give him a warning or instructions about how to be a good king. And you'll remember that Solomon, when he became king in his famous prayer, you know, had, I mean, now we know where he got all that. And there's two things here that she admonishes him on, and uh, they're great lessons for all of us. And the first thing that she says here is, Give not thy strength on the women, nor the ways to that which destroyeth kings. Now, this is great advice for Solomon and uh, of course, like most kids, he doesn't heed it very long after he gets into power. And uh, it brings about his downfall as king because the Bible tells us he has a 1,000 wives. And then later on we'll see that these are the ones that turned his heart away from God, and he went after all the false gods. And after a while, he's just like any pagan out there. I mean, he's offering his kids to the fire of Moloch, He's worshiping the female deities of Ashtoreth and all that crowd. It really, you see the warning should have been well-heeded. Now, uh, inspirationally, it's it's a great verse for any young man. And it's simply talking about giving your strength that God has given you. Remember now, if you're saved, He, has, he began a good work in you. And He's going to give you the strength to do that work. And what happens is with young guys is uh, many times, young Christians, I've seen it all my ministry all my life, and I'm sure that most of you have, you've been around here very long, Uh, we see that a young man will will take that strength that God gave him, and a a woman too, but talking about men here, it will take that strength that God has given to do that job and and give it to the world. I mean, I've seen so many young men who had what I thought was great potential for God, uh, and then it all uh, gets thrown away over a, a girl or a gal or somebody. And I, I could think, you know, in my mind, I don't know how many guys I've seen that came into this church or, or been in my ministry and really had a great potential. And, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, the devil, you know, they, 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 there again, they pick and choose. And they're lonely, I get it. And they want a girlfriend, I get it. So devil brings in Susie Sweetheart and it's all over. I mean, uh, he now takes all those things that he was given to God that God gave to him, and he gives them to the world. And I don't know how many times I've seen it. I mean, I, since we've been here, I probably can think of seven or eight times where you guys have invited some young guy in, and he was a good kid and started to get in, and then, you know, he meets some gal from another church someplace that is doctrinally uh, messed up. Uh, I remember we've lost some to, uh, um, what, what? Um, Uh, IHOP, International House of Pancakes Church. You know, uh, we've lost some to them. Most screwed up, cult on the planet. Uh, We've lost some to the big knee evangelicals, mega church, you know. And he starts going to church with her. And, of course, she has no interest in the Bible. And after about 20 minutes with her, he has no interest in the Bible. And so he goes to that church and loses everything. I mean, it's just that way it goes. You know, I've seen him do it in a charismatic church. Well, that would be IHOP or the neo-evangelical uh, mega churches, you know, and it's all over. He dumps the book and all that God has given him and uh, gives that strength to, uh, to, that, uh, to that woman or to that religion. And, of course, doctrinally, and I know it's talking about a woman here giving your strength to women. I get that, but doctrinally we know who this woman is. She, uh, we have seen her throughout the book of Proverbs. Uh, we've seen her as the whorish woman, the strange woman, the wicked woman, the odious woman. We saw her in Proverbs chapter 5 and Proverbs chapter 7. We actually saw the case study in those two, how that she uh, is a religion that seduces young men to commit spiritual fornication and winds up destroying them. You know, it's a religion, Revelation seventeen eighteen, that with the attire of a harlot. And uh, she's called the mother of harlots in Revelation seventeen five. And uh, we know that all the religious, false religions of the world will one way or the other come out of her. Uh, And, of course, we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church and Baal worship in the Old Testament. But, you know, you can look down through history. The Roman Catholic Church is the great whore, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. doesn't take a rocket science to figure that out. We see, uh, you know, four or 500 years after she started, she split with the Greek Orthodox Church and then the Russian Orthodox Church. Those are, her, those are her children. And then during the Reformation, <clears throat> we see it again with the, what is called the Protestant churches, and that'll be the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, the Methodists a little bit later on, the Church of England, and they all come out of the Roman Catholic Church. They're her grandchildren. Uh, and then they all go back in like they are today. They're all connected together. A little bit later on, around 1900, we see her influence in the neo-evangelical movement, uh, we see her influence in the charismatic movement, and we see her influence in the neo-orthodoxy movement, and destroys all of those things. And you know, and to the point where uh, instead of seeing it, now all the neo-evangelical churches—those will be the churches, by the way—that don't have a denomination on their name. And a lot of them were once Baptist churches that took it off so they could move into that because they thought that the name Baptist uh, was hated so much by people and gave us a bad a rap that nobody would want to come to your church well you know what it'll never be the name of your church that determines whether people come or not it'll be the leading of the holy spirit of god now i know that's way over your head at this point in your life and probably you changing taking baptist off your name was a good thing because i certainly don't want to be associated with him but the push comes to shove you know what all you did was train one denomination for another that's all you did and now the denomination that you're in now by taking Baptist off your name and just putting it whatever your name is, now you've lined up with the neo-evangelical who back in the 90s signed an accordance with the Roman Catholic Church that you guys were going to kiss each other on the lips hard and, and hold hands and sing Kumbaya and through the Catholic Church and the Protestants you were going to win the world and evangelize the world. How's that working out for you? It's obvious that you haven't spent much time in the book of Proverbs, <laughs> So that's the way it works. And uh, you know, uh, and and you know, add to that, you have uh, you know, not only uh, the mother of harlots producing all these churches, but then the devil produced his Bible. You know, right now as we stand here, there are 120 different translations of the scriptures. 120. That'll probably change by the end of the month, but right now there's hundred and twenty translations. 119 of them are out of the devil's camp. There's only one that's of God. And of course, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy. and I I don't know what to tell you. Now, this woman has been the topic of the book of Proverbs. Did you ever notice? Maybe you haven't. In the book of Proverbs, you have 12 kinds of women. 12 kinds of women. I mean, in chapter 11, verse 22, you have a fair woman at 11, 16, you have a gracious woman. In chapter 6, verse 26, you have a whorish woman. In chapter 30, verse 23, you have an ad- a, a- adodious ad- woman. That's wicked. In chapter 30, verse 20, you have an adulterous woman. In chapter 21, verse 9, you have a brawling woman. In chapter 2, verse 16, you have a strange woman. In chapter 6, verse 24, you have an evil woman In chapter 21, verse 19, you have a contentious and angry woman. In chapter 9, verse 13, you have a foolish woman. And in chapter 14, verse 1, you have a wise woman. And lastly, in chapter 31, verse 10, where we're at now, you have a virtuous woman. And the Bible makes it very clear she's hard to find. And along with that, you have a wise man, and in the book of Proverbs, there's nine things that define a wise man, and you have a foolish man, and there's eight things there that define him. The book of Proverbs doesn't leave a lot to the imagination when it comes to people. And Sodom is warned by his mother not to involve himself with the world system of religion typified by women, and remember now, 1 Kings 11.1 1 helps us to understand what she's actually saying within the context because it says there, but King Solomon loved many strange women. And verse 2 of chapter 11 says that they turned his heart away from God and Solomon clave, claved to these in love. And of course it was his downfall. Now the second thing uh, he's not to indulge in as a king, will be wine nor strong drink. Oh, we're going to have fun with this one. And you'll see this all the way through the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 2, chapter 20, verse 1, chapter 21, verse 17, 23, 30, 31, 4. I mean, it's, just, it's all through there. And of course, a number of months ago, I, I took the time on a Sunday morning and completely laid out the aspect of drinking from the New Testament. And we now know that the definitive chapter on that is Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two. And uh, you know, and of course, doctrinally, this strong drink and wine goes along with a woman. And Revelation seventeen two says it's the wine of her fornication, which again goes back to the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, you know, she's saying, his mother here, as a king, these two things will become your downfall, all found in the world system of religion. And last week, you know, we uh, we saw how that the devil is manifested into an angel of light. And historically, it's true of Solomon. Doctrinally, it's true of Israel. But inspirationally, it's any child of God who, like Israel, leaves God to go after another God, no matter who she may be. And as a Christian now, you need to understand, God's perception of us is not only that we're Jesus Christ, His Son. The day you got saved, i say it again, you were translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. Now He lives inside you. And now you are Christ, and now He did that because The day you got saved, he began a good work in you, and he wants to perform it under the day of Jesus Christ, which is the rapture of the church. So keep that in mind now. inspirationally, it's any child of God who, like Israel, leaves God for another God. And as a Christian, someday we are going to reign with Christ as a king. Right now, Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says that we're doing the work of God but we're going to be a, we're going to reign with him as a joint heir. A joint heir is an equal part. You know why? Because you're an equal part. You're Christ. And boy, when you start to look why God has a millions of Christ doing the work for him today, when he's up there in heaven, it'll give you a great creed why in eternity there's going to be millions of Christ doing the work. <laughs> well, we'll stop it right there. I don't want to ruin your lunch. But as a king, we have an inheritance. And in the millennium, we reign with him, and then that reign carries out through all of eternity. But taking the strength that God gives us to serve him now and giving it to the world system will get us the throne very quickly. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, where Paul is giving instructions to his own son of the Lord, Timothy, a young man, and talking about this very subject. He says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. And there's your millennial reign. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And, of course, that verse is used by people who teach heresy that you can lose your salvation. And, of course, uh, nothing could be farther from the truth. You know you can't lose your salvation. The greatest reason why you cannot lose your salvation is because it's not your salvation to begin with. So it's kind of hard to lose something that isn't yours when it comes to salvation. But they can't read. And, of course, uh, it says, if we suffer, that means now, doing the work, we shall all reign with him. That's later. If we deny him, you don't do the work, he will deny us. And, of course, everybody now says that means that uh, you know, again, he's going to deny you that you're not his. And, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. If you look at verse 12 in the sentence structure, it says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Salvation is not anywhere in the verse. What he denies you, duh, is the reign, not your salvation. Now, if that wasn't abundantly clear just by the English structure in the king's English, he still throws 13 in there just to foul anybody up that wanted to take it any farther let read 12 and 13 together. If we suffer now, we shall reign with him then. If we deny him now, he will deny us our reign then. If we believe not, there's somebody that completely walks away. Yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, that's a great verse that tells you whatever you are today as a Christian, you're him. Because he cannot deny himself. That is you because you are him. All these millions of Christ around and around today. Ooh, how can that be? How can that be? It's easy. When you do the work, you understand it. When you don't do the work, you can't understand anything. And uh, now, you know, the great example to me is David. And I mentioned this Thursday night. I think I did. And David starts out as a shepherd boy very young, and he winds up as a king, the king of Israel. And by the way, he's the greatest king that Israel ever had, including all of his issues, as far as God was concerned. And it's a thing where I always looked at that as where we are at. Right now, we ought to be shepherds, and we are to be taking and tending the flock. And just as he was elevated from a shepherd, translated into a king, you and I right now should be shepherds doing the work And when Christ comes back, we, too, will be translated into being a king through that transformation process, and uh, it it will reign with him. Now, the issues with both of these things that she's admonishing him over, uh, look at verse 5. Let us drink and forget the law, oh, excuse me, lest they drink, not let us drink. I know some of you got excited about that. (laughs) Uh, some of you going to stop at the liquor store on the way home. but uh, uh, Like the guy was leading the singing one time, a guy was up there and he says, the poor preacher was going to town and he says, uh, you know what, we need to take all the booze and throw it in the river. Take all the beer and throw it in the river. We got to take all the wine and throw it in the river. Take all the whiskey and throw it in the river. Everybody's going, amen. Song leader get up and he says, okay, let's turn over to 432. Let's all gather out the river. But <laughs> Lest they drink. And forget the law and pervert the judgment of any uh, of the afflicted. Now, a king, in our context here, he is responsible for his people. He has to lead them, and he uses his seat of power and authority to take care of them. It's his job to protect them, to help them. And uh, in a church scenario though a pastor certainly is not a king in that sense, but he is responsible for his people. And a church should do two things. It should admonish people, and it should edify people. You know, and when a king uh, is a drunk or given to drink, he loses the ability to see or keep uh, the right perspective in dealing with the judgment that he has to make. And then the, the righteous judgment that his people are depending on uh, become a perverted mess. And I say it all the time. You want to remember that everything, you know, rises and falls on leadership. It, it, it's just that simple. And it's, a, it's, an absolute, it's an absolute mess when, you know, it falls apart. Now, a great example of this right here would be in uh, the book of Esther, chapter 1. <clears throat> remember the story about King Ahasuerus? And he has a way, and he brings all the people in. They all get smashed and all gets drunk, and then he per, it perverts his judgment. And it, it's one of those things that's just a great, you know, great, uh, uh, a great concept as you, as you begin to lay it out. Uh, look, as a leader, the principles of the Word of God will give you the ability to make good, sound, quality judgments. And there's going to be times when you have to make judgments in the people that you have to lead. You have to make decisions about it. Uh, you know, you you have to you have to have good judgment in the problems that you have to solve. And then you got to have you're going to have issues in your own life that you've got to deal with biblically. And getting God's wisdom uh, is imperative. Proverbs chapter four verse seven says, "Wisdom is the principal thing." Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. God's knowledge plus God's wisdom will be God's understanding in everything that you've got to deal with and you've got to work with. Now, now in this chapter, verse 6 and 7 here, will be uh, some incredible inside truth as to why people drink. Now, I know the world system, you know, pushes that all the time. Every beer commercial you ever saw, every billboard, it's always a bunch of young people at the beach and young people having fun, so people associate that with it all. I wish they would uh, make great beer and whiskey commercials with going down to the City Union Mission or some of the homeless people that we deal with, I think, but they're not going to do that. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. And uh, in, in this chapter, it's incredible inside truth. It says in verse 6, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. It says, to, and, and wine unto those that be heavy, of heavy hearts. Let him drink uh, to forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Now you find today that 95% of the Christian churches you know, certainly the evangelical churches, and I 'm going to tell you right now the churches that used to be Baptist that all have dumped Baptist off their name, uh, the big mega churches, hey, the music is worldly, the preaching is worldly, and their lifestyle is worldly. and all of those guys will get up in the pulpit and tell you it 's okay to social drink. It just goes to show you how how far we've come in such a short time uh, within the twentieth century that guys are either absolutely oblivious to history or they're just stupid or they just like to drink. I guess Billy Sunday was wrong in everything that he preached back in the 20s. Billy Sunday preached against the the bootleggers and he preached against booze. He actually, through his preaching, uh, actually was responsible for prohibition coming into this country, or one of the main forces behind it. And he preached against all forms of liquor there wasn't there wasn't any social drinking there wasn 't any of this and he was one of the last great awakenings and openings of 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 this church in the seven of them While I say that, let me just say this: I was on getting ready for church this morning, and you know I was uh, uh watching the uh, uh uh, Joe Olstein was getting ready to come on, and I, I I only watch him to get the joke at the beginning, and I use him sometimes here. Kelly, my daughter, loves me to; she always knows she watches him too, and she always says, "Dad, that was one of his jokes this morning." I said, "Yeah, it was," you know. But actually, he gets them from me out of my books, and we don't tell anybody that. But anyway, right before I on his ad come on, and it was a guy; his last name was Evans, and he so and he showed all kinds of pictures of him predicting all these things that are now happening to us, the coronavirus, the the great uh, economic this, and it shows him in different positions of prayer like he's really seriously involved in all of this. And he wrote a book called The Next Great Awakening That's Coming. And what he's saying in his book and what he's putting out there is that through this great pandemic uh, that's going around the world is going to lead us to another sweeping revival of people coming back to God. And uh, that's it, the, the the coming great awakening. And, of course, he's associating it with the great awakenings that have been down through church history. And, uh, you know, and obviously this guy doesn't have a Bible, probably doesn't know the Bible, and he's more interested in making a lot of money off his book, so I get it. But I'm going to tell you right now, and I don't even have a book on this. I had a bunch of them in there, but I got a book right here that tells me there'll be no more great awakenings. And it was kind of scary when he said that because given where we're at, given where this world is at, given the last generation we're in, yeah, this whole thing may lead to a great awakening, uh, but it won't be a great awakening with the Lord Jesus Christ. It could be the in of the Antichrist after we're out of here. If you know anything about history in your Bible, you know that there were seven great awakenings and there's not going to be an eighth one. We know from the generation where we're at and why it didn't go to change and guys like that that come on that have all these serious things that they think about, you know, that, oh, I believe that this is going to bring another great revival to America. It shows you how stupid people really are because I just got one question I would ask him, and he couldn't answer this, but I'll just ask you. Can you actually have a revival without God's word? Can you really? If you can, I'd like to know how that is. And, of course, uh but this is, this, is, this is where we're at today. And, uh, you know, you'll find that most of them think that today that it's okay to drink, social drinking. I've had pastors that are major megachurch pastors, uh, you know, get up in the pulpit and simply say, you know, there's no difference between, uh, you know, playing video games and, and, and drinking. I know churches that, uh, that they, uh, the staff members go out for lunch. And uh, they stack their shot glasses. They put it on YouTube. I mean, they put it on Facebook. I mean, they 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 just like there's nothing wrong with it. And the pastors get up there and tell them, as long as you do it in moderation, it's okay. And the pastors do it too. I've seen them post pictures on their Facebook or whatever somebody has sent me that, um, you know, that they're drinking a beer or whatever and then put down there, now, don't judge me. Well, I'm not going to judge you. I could care less. Uh, but there's one coming that's going to judge you. Amen. Don't worry about me. It's like, you know, people worry about you judging them. You ain't got to worry about me judging you. You got to worry about God judging you. I had a guy one time went out and wanted to start a church, which he had no business starting a church, and he couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag, and he knew my, I got a, my, my yellow lab, Daisy, knows more Bible than he does. And, uh, you know, he comes in, but they all do the same thing. They all come in, and they talk to you, and they want to get your blessing. And when you tell them, look, I don't think you're a pastor. I don't think you're this, but you go do whatever you want to do. Then they all go out and tell everybody, well, I got God's blessing. And I told, I tell these guys, you know what? You don't, you don't need my blessing. But if you're going to go do this, you better have God's blessing. What are you worried about mine for? Well, I'm nobody. I don't care. You said, well, I want Bob's blessing. You better have God's blessing in the thing. Forget me. But that, that's where we're at. So these guys are up there, you know, telling other people it's okay to drink, and they have counselors on staff. You know, if somebody goes in with, you know, do you ever stop and think how if you're dealing with an out, al- and, and these guys don't deal with anybody anymore. They really don't. They probably haven't all of their life. They always subcontract them out to all their other, you know, staffers out there. But let me tell you something: you would never take that stand if you ever dealt with an alcoholic. You're going to bring an alcoholic to your church and you're going to he's he's lost his family he's lost everything and you actually believe that you're going to be able to tell an alcoholic it's okay if he just social drinks and doesn't go over and fall off the the truck are you kidding me i i mean it is the most ridiculous thing on the planet you can't tell your flesh you can have a little bit i mean you can't and it's a thing where you know that's 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 where we're at today and you know if Billy Sunday had it right on the money, and he was back there in the 20s and the 30s, you know, and and all that stuff, and, you know, but everybody forgets that today. They don't see it because we lost the book, we lost our minds. When you lose God's mind, it's only a matter of weeks and you're going to lose your mind, and that's just where it's at. If you're not going to let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, the next question is whose mind is going to be in you? And, of course, you know, You want a couple of verses that show you why a Christian uh, should not drink. I mean, I know you go all those places. There's two best ones in the Bible are right here. I mean, first of all, it says it's not for kings. If you're going to be a king someday, then it's not for you. And if that wasn't enough, verse 6 says, as a Christian, really, are, are you ready to perish? Because that's what it says. Give strong drink to him that is ready to perish. I'm a Christian. Are you ready to perish? It says that they drink to forget their misery as a Christian. <laughs> probably true. So. Do you need to forget your misery? I thought we, in all things we were more than conquerors through Christ. Really? Is this taught anywhere in Paul's writings? I mean, in Romans chapter 9, verse 2, Paul says he's got a heavy heart. All right, did Paul get rid of that heavy heart? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says he's in affliction. And over there in Romans chapter 9, verse 15, he's feeling sorrow. Okay, did he stop by on the way to Rome at the three taverns? And get past his, his heavy heart, his affliction, and his, his sorrow by having a couple of drinks before he went to Rome? And he's actually got guys in, in, in Acts chapter 28, verse 15, that talks about Paul going to the three taverns. They actually think that that was a bar that he <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Now, these two verses should end it for the child of God or pastors who want to promote any form of alcoholism or social drinking in any way, shape, or form. And yet, in these two verses, we see the real reason why people drink. And now we begin to understand. I get it. I know why God's people drink, and I know why unsaved people drink. Here's the key, verse 7. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember no more his misery. People drink because they want to forget I get it. I've seen Christians that their lives are so screwed up, their families are so screwed up. I mean, they've lost everything. They've lost their family. They've lost their marriage. They've lost their children. They're lonely. They're broken. Uh, their, 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 their life is a dead-end street. They go through depression. They're on drugs. They're on Prozac or they're on this, Xanax. or on this, and they're, I mean, they've got anxiety. And their, their life is that they just can't go on anymore. No, they'll never turn back to God but they'll turn to the bottle. Because in the bottle, the verse says it. You can forget temporarily. Alcoholism is nothing more than people that are trying to forget some things. <clears throat> and I get it. <clears throat> if you're not going to let the Spirit of God influence your life and guide you, then you'll let the spirits that you get at High uh, V in their wine section do it for you. It's just that simple. And for a Christian, I get it. You want to drink and drown out your life because it helps you forget that someday you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the work that you're not doing. And for an unsaved man, sure, you're going to drink to forget all you're going to face when you stand before God at the great white throne judgment because you've rejected Christ. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Write it down. Tell everybody you're hearing her first. You heard it here first. Only two addictions in life. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, the house of Stephanus was addicted to the ministry. Or you're going to be addicted to this world. Only two. Only two. Now, in verses 8 and 9, we are told as a king, a good one here, We are told as a king that we are to open our mouths about two things. And this is what a good king does when he doesn't have the things that destroy him being a king and pervert his judgment. And this is the responsibility of a good leader, a king, a pastor, and a pastor certainly isn't Equated as a king, but you understand where I'm going to keep him from getting his judgment perverted. He says in verse 8, Open thy mouth for the dumb in the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. Now, the first thing he says is that we're to open our mouths for the dumb. Now, I don't, I got to explain the word dumb here, it doesn't mean dumb as in stupid. It's meaning dumb as in somebody who cannot speak for themselves. When somebody is deaf and can't speak, we call them deaf and dumb. They may be the most intelligent person on the planet. Dumb in the sense, and you find this used throughout the Bible, dumb in the sense that they can't speak. They can't speak uh, because of the oppression that they're under. Now, doctrinally, Solomon here this would be a king standing up for his people when an injustice has befallen them. Both David and Solomon do this as any good leader, any good king should. You know, the great American joke today is an incredible joke that, uh, that, uh, that our government is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Our government cares nothing for the people. It's a self-serving, stay in power at any cost, totally political in everything it does. End of the day, it comes down to every politician about two things, money and power. Two key words that drive it all. All you have to do is look at America going through the time that she's going through, going through all the struggle, people out of work, people on all kinds of deals, And the president getting up and saying, we're going to do this, 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 we're going to give you this, we're going to give you that. All you small businesses are going to get this. Unemployment, you're going to get this. And you know what? You can't get on the unemployment line on the Internet because the system keeps overloading. In Kansas, they're so far behind, it's unbelievable. It's one thing to tell your people what you're going to do for them, but then they see the fallacy of it when all it is is words and it doesn't work. Then you had the stimulus package that they were going to give. And then they what? They held it up for what? A week? Eight days? Because they're arguing back and forth over their petty little thing. They care nothing about the people. And you're supposed to believe it. And of course, it's one of those things where um, it's, it's, it's all about them. It's always been that way, or at least for a long time inspirationally, it's a simple little rule every Christian leader, certainly every pastor should follow. And that simply is it's saying that we need to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. That's our job. And I'm to open my mouth and speak for them, the dumb, the ones who cannot speak for themselves, the ones that may be under the oppression. I'm to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. Most churches, most pastors will rule their congregation in one of two ways. It'll be through intimidation or it'll be through political. And uh, and neither one is biblical. A pastor is there to serve his people by example as they serve God together, not for the people to serve him. And neither is biblical. If you have the power and authority of a pastor or a leader in a New Testament church, you to use that power to make your people better. And you take your stand with them, uh, never against them. And I understand in saying that, that there's times that they're wrong and you've got to deal with it. But even in that, your job is to try to help them. I, I can't stand bullies. I can't stand people who pick on the weak people uh, to position themselves or make themselves to look strong, I, I just I just have a really tough time with that. Uh, I've always had a problem with it. You know, I found through lessons in life that most bullies are really cowards. They hide behind their bulliness. <clears throat> I remember when I was in the eighth grade, <clears throat> I wasn't much. You know, I was just a little fat kid, and you know, I just uh, I hadn't come into my own yet, and. And, uh, and there was this bully that always, you know, he, he was bullying everybody. And I stayed away from him, you know, and I didn't buy. But then he started bullying me. You know, and I, and I you know, I wasn't much, but I, I, I didn't like bullies. And I, I you know, I, my attitude was, I mean, you may kick my rear end and I may be on the ground, but I'm not going to put up with your bulliness. And, you know, I may lose the fight, but you'll know you were in one, best I can do. You know what? And it's one of those things where, so, you know, he challenged me when, you know, in, in grade school, this was a big deal. Everybody, the word spread through the school. Oh, there's going to be a fight after school today. And I can't even remember this guy. He was bigger than me. Both, uh, you know, and, but uh, I didn't care. I mean, you know what? I, I, I wasn't going to be bullied. And I just figured, like, he may get the best of me and may put me in the hospital. But you know what? He'll be in the bed next to me. And so it was a thing where that after school, everybody, uh, it must have been a crowd of 50, 60 kids. And we always had this lot, about four blocks from the church, church, from the school, where the fights took place. And everybody went around. He was a big guy, and, you know, he's typical, you know. And I, I really, I mean, I, at that point in my life, I, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't much of a fighter. But I, at the same time, sometimes when you have a desire that you hate something so bad, you'll find it within yourself to do what you got. Now, later on, after I got in the Army, <laughs> oh, but never mind that story. But anyway... <laughs> We're in this lot, and he's coming up there. It was kind of like Dave and Goliath, except I had left my slingshot at home. And uh, this come up there, and, he's, uh, and I figured he's bigger than I am. He outweighed me by about probably 30, maybe 30, 40 pounds. And uh, I knew that without any kind of fighting experience at all, if I was going to come out of this in any way, shape, or form, I had to strike first and strike fast. And so it was one of those things where he's coming up and every, he's, he's making a show for all the girls that are there and all the guys, you know, he's swaggering up all this stuff, you know, and he's talking and talking and talking. And he got about two feet from me and he's just talking with his hands crossed, which is a perfect thing. You put your hands across your chest, you're giving me at least three seconds to nail you before you react to it. And I just stood there, Look, I was, look, I was scared, like... Please don't hurt me, Mr. Man. I mean, all those things, you know. And, I, and So he, he lost his guard now, And he's talking. And boy, all of a sudden, I caught him right in the nose. Blood squirted everywhere. I mean, knocked him down. I mean, and I just stood there. He'd get up in front of everybody. He says, it's over, it's over. And off he went. I can't stand bullies. I can't. And, uh, you know, I don't know what he'd done if he'd have got up and really got mad. I'd, You know, I had my 357 inside the back of my belt here. I probably nailed him with that. But anyway, I can't stand bullies. And like I said, truth be known, they're all like that guy. You know, in ministry today, we as God's people need to stand up for the little guys who who the Christian schools and all the scholars and all the evangelicals and all they're all bullied by those with some kind of education that they think they're smart telling them, the young guys, you know, young Christians, that God didn't uh, give him a perfect Bible and then intimidating him by it. Or that, you know, the verses are wrong in the Bible and they need to be retranslated. Or that the Bible, you know, that that verse shouldn't be in the Bible. Or the Bible has many contradictions and mistakes in it because it's only a translation by man. You know, back in that bookstore, I wrote a book a number of years ago, 20 Lies About the King James Bible that takes on what the 20 things that they usually come up with. That book has been all over the place, man. Uh, You know, and they'll tell you that the originals are the real truth, but unfortunately, uh, you don't know Greek or Hebrew. But uh, fear not, I do. Uh, So let me instruct you and tell you what your Bible means. Hey, all my life, I have waged warfare with those kind of guys, for the little guy, for the little guy out there that he just wants the truth, (laughs) And they bully him. He doesn't have an education maybe like they have, so he's intimidated by it. And so they just do what they do to try to manipulate them. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I've spent my whole life taking those guys on. It, it, I mean, it, it's just, uh, if I've learned anything through this virus mess and the shutdown, it's been how many people <coughs> are still out there around this country and around this world who are dying just to get the truth. I'm telling you, the little guys, the little guys who are sick of the phony churches and the phony pastors who will not uh, teach their people or feed them, the mega churches where all you are are a number. About last year sometime <clears throat> on Joe Olstein, it was hilarious. He was talking about serving God and he was talking about faithfulness. <clears throat> and he said, you know what, just last week, we had a guy that passed away in our church that he was faithful in my ministry for 30 years. He'd stand at that door and he'd shake hands and he'd welcome people and he was doing the ministry. And then he should have just left it at that. But then he killed himself and he said, you know what, I never really met the guy. And I'm not, I don't even know his name. He was one of those great, you're kidding me a guy in your church for 30 years who was faithful in ministry and you never took the time to meet him? You don't even know his name? I bet you remember the name of the last guy I gave you $10,000 to your church home. I'm telling you, man. Guys out there starving to death to get the Bible, get truth. We have them all over. My week is filled with either 10 or 15 messages, emails, or texts from people who, who just are all over the place from Florida and Ohio and New York and New Mexico and Nebraska, Iowa, North Carolina, Alabama, from Washington to, to Idaho to California uh, to Missouri to Kansas. Just yesterday I talked to a guy from California, probably 45 minutes. We got them around the world in England. We got them in the Netherlands. The guy from the Netherlands the other night was on Bible study and you know, and, and put in a question. And I, and I didn't think about it at the time and somebody clued me in afterwards that here we are at 8 o'clock at night on a Bible study and this guy was in the Netherlands and the people in England. It's 3.30 in the morning over there. There's somebody that in the middle of the night they're going to get up to be part of a Bible study because they can't get it over there we got him in africa we got him in we got him in uh, you know uh in mexico i a couple of months ago i i got a text from a guy that, that mike veach from new york and mike veach is a great guy and he's a, got a great church up there he took over Mel Sabaka's church and he just sent me a little text and he says i just want to thank you he says we're in the, i'm in the philippines right now and we just finished a pastors conference with 200 and some pastors that are all through the Philippines, and he says, I want you to know that we used three of your books for the textbooks that you had written. One of them was the 20 Lies About the King James Bible. The other one was, I think, How to Study the Bible, and, you know, and I don't know what the third one was. And he said, I just wanted to thank you that you, because uh, I told him, I said, take whatever you want. You don't have to buy them. Just take them and print them off. Do what you want to do with them. How can you put a price on something that, you know, that God has given you free? Are you kidding me? I know we sell things in a bookstore, but I guarantee you, that little sign in the little red bookstore up there isn't the word red because you read it. It's the red because we run in the red all the time. And I'm just telling you. You know, I don't talk. You don't talk about those things. You don't get up and brag about those things. Uh, uh, You know, I, I, I look at our church as like that little story. Remember the little story about the little... The little train engine, the little train en- little little chain, little train that could, you know, goes up that hill. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Got to that hill. Started down the other side. I know I can. I know I can. This is the little church that could. It goes to show you, you don't have to have 10,000 people for God to do something. We're reaching the world with the truth because we just believe the truth that God gave us. This is a church of the open door. And every week I get, you know, 10 or 15 cards or emails or texts or letters, you know, of just thanking us for the website and what goes on. And, and when we put the Bible Institute on the deal, I just don't, can't tell you, I don't know why I didn't do it before, but people were just gravitated to it. And it's a thing where, it's just, it's just where it is. You know, every week opening our mouth to those who want it and they don't, they don't have it. And if they don't get it, it's going to wind up, they're going to be appointed to destruction as far as their lives are concerned. And they're tired of the fake New Testament Christianity. Uh, Then they'll just get swallowed up. The bullies will push them around. Somebody uh, needs to stand up for them. Somebody needs to take a stand and preach the truth and, uh, you know, and, and let the chips fall. You know, I don't care what anybody thinks. You know, I have one rule in dealing with people when it comes to the Bible. No quarter asked, no quarter given. Uh, That's just the way it would be. Now, the second time I'm to open my mouth, or we are. Verse 9, open thy mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Now, here it's dealing with the decisions that we have to make in dealing with people. And this is what Solomon's mother is referring to. And uh, there will be times when you have to deal with somebody on something and, uh, you know, people uh, seek your help or in the decision that they have to make and they'll call upon you. And uh, and when you do or when they do, uh, you know, you have to leave your emotions out of it. You, you you can't take it personal. You can't look beyond anything other than the principles. A good king, within the context, pastor and an inspiration, although a pastor is not a king, say it again, will not make decisions uh, on his feelings. You know, uh, You know, hence you find when somebody gets boozed up, you know, they lose their perception. He'll make it on pure biblical principles, good, solid judgment. And, of course, you see examples of this all through the Bible. The greatest one is in 1 Kings 3 when Solomon has to deal with the two harlots. He just simply deals with the issue based on the principles. You know, our people ministry, that's on hold right now because... You know, that's a closed deal, and we want to give you as much time as we can in the Bible, so we just doubled up on the, on the Bible Institute. But our people ministry was simply taking 80 or 90 people who really wanted to work with me in dealing with people. And this simply, no, no great keys to it, no great secret to it. We started at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, and now we're into the New Testament, I think. I can't remember. I think we're in Matthew now. And just following the principles, the models, and the patterns of dealing with people in whatever issue it may be. Following the book, the value of all of our six or seven years in the book of Proverbs. And, uh, you know, righteous judgment is simply always doing what's right with people, by people. Righteous judgment is never desired to hurt anybody. I tell people all the time, and we have people come in here, you know, and they're beat up and they have some issues and they've been struggling with some things, and Christianity probably dumped on them and just gave them all kinds of problems. And they're looking for a place to come and just rest. And I always tell people, nobody will ever hurt you here. There's no ego here. There's no uh, there's no uh, uh, political structure here. <clears throat> you can pretty much do whatever you want to do, have whatever you want to have. You know, nobody's going to tell you within, you know, reason you know, what you can or what you can't do. You can learn whatever you want. You can have people work with you that you want to. We're here for that. And I always tell them, this is a safe place. Nobody will hurt you here. But then I also say, you may hurt yourself, but nobody here will hurt you. And the only way you hurt yourself is by stepping outside those guidelines and start causing issues, you know. Then we got to deal with it. But, you know, righteous judgment is never designed to hurt anybody. It's, you know... People make mistakes. I wish people didn't do dumb things, but then, then they'd be different than me because I do a lot of dumb things. We all do dumb things. We all make bad choices. Uh, nobody's perfect. And righteous judgments helps us that it, even though we, we help them uh, through keeping them accountable with the principles, but we try to get them and make them better. We try to deal with the issues, and you know you can't just snap your fingers and fix somebody. I wish you could. I, I wish there was a, <clears throat> I wish there was a magic stick, a magic formula. Make you drink this and your problems go away. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes you have to go the distance with people. You know, it's like I said one time. You know, you, not only do you have to go the extra mile, but you got to go the extra smile. You got to be there for them. You know, a pastor will deal uh, with his people. Um, in t- only two ways. It'll either be righteous judgment that will help them, or it'll be self-righteous judgment that'll hurt them. And, uh, you, you know, we as a church, me as a pastor, or uh, a in the context of Solomon as the king, and again, pastor's not a king, should, you know, open, uh, should open our mouths. We should speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Uh, Help them who cannot help themselves. We should preach the truth of God's word without any compromise, but we should always come to the place that the end result is to help somebody. Uh, You know what? I found in dealing with people over the years, you get judgmental towards somebody and you get to the point where, you know, you're not willing to forgive them or you're not willing to work with them or you just get an attitude about them. Sometimes God brings that back around in your own family. And sometimes the the only way God can teach you that lesson is to give you somebody in your own world that's the same way. And even then I've seen where they couldn't see it. You know, uh, we... uh, we, It's a thing where we have to continue to, especially in the time they're in right now. And this is why when I saw what was coming, uh, I know human nature. I don't care how solid you are in the Bible or how much you know the Bible. No man is an island. And if we, especially our church, with all the camaraderie we have and the, and all of the closeness that we have, if you don't have some form of holding it all together, you're going to have some issues. And never under any circumstances do you give your strength that God has given you uh, to help others. Do give it to the world. Uh, you know, you know, false religion, the woman's, the booze, the false spirits. You know, so as you know, as we as we look at this work that God began in us, and we realize that every one of us, God saved, put His Holy Spirit of God, He lives inside us. We now are Christ, and our job is to finish what He started. And then in eternity, <laughs> this is just a test case. Where do you get out there and see what you're doing? And it's one of those things that uh, uh, we take the place of Christ on earth. Were his body, the body of Christ. The word Christian means little Christ to finish what he started, the plan, the model. And this is the work that, you know, God has for us. You know, and next week we're going to begin to break down the very, very, very key aspects to that work. And we are going to look at it in an incredible way. And if you're anybody at all who is interested in doing that work that God has called you to do, and I realize that, you know, there are some people that don't really care. You know, all you do is complain about what you don't like or this or that. I I get it. I understand. I know. I get it. And uh, we're on a trip to heaven, and on any trip, you always got bugs that hit the windshield. I get it. But it's one of those things where we need to take care of each other. And now is the time where all of these principles probably more than ever. And if you're out there and you're flapping in the wind and you're beginning to see it in your family, at some point you have got to trust God. At some point, I mean, if you can trust God to get you this far in your life without getting the disease, you ought to be able to trust God to take you the other way. The thing you do not want is you do not want perfect health from the virus and be a spiritual bastard case. And I'm just telling you, at some point you need to step up, lead your family and say, I've got to get what we got to have because we cannot continue to do this any longer because it's taken a toll. And brother, it's going to take a toll. And it already has taken a toll. And it's one of those things, next week we will begin to break each aspect of our work down that he talked about in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I'm going to show you where we are as workers in the vineyard that God sent his workers, laborers, into the vineyard. Again, chapter 1 through chapter 7, my son, chapter 8 through 30, the Proverbs themselves, chapter 31, the end result of getting the knowledge of God, Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. And I'll leave you with this. The day you got saved, he began a good work in you. And he's going to perform that work under the day of Jesus Christ. It's either going to be a work as a vessel of honor or it's going to be a work as a vessel of dishonor. But you're going to have to decide which it's going to be. Well, we'll hold up there. Appreciate you being here today. Uh, If you want to drop your offering in, if you haven't done that yet, that's fine. And uh, I'll, I'll be back online Thursday night.